following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Well, if, if you're uh, just joining us, first of all, we're glad to have you here uh, with us on Sunday morning as we come together to worship Jesus and um, gather, put, place ourselves be- beneath the authority of God's word and to gather for sacrament. Um, we, over the last, you know, couple months, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's maybe Jesus' most famous discourse, his most famous sayings, um, and, and I would just probably venture out to say it might be the most popular or most um, well-known thing that's ever been said. Um, this, this Sermon on the Mount that we see in Matthews chapter 5, 6, and 7 is simply iconic. I think that's the best way to describe it. And in fact, you can think of this like, you know, maybe, maybe the most iconic person in this time right now, um, maybe who has the, the widest reach, the widest viewership, is probably Joe Rogan, uh, one of the best podcasters in the world. He's just got, always got fascinating guests on his show. Um, and he has a, like a, a global reach. Like he, he puts out a podcast, people all across the world hear it. But listen, if you take this, the, this, the iconic nature of Joe Rogan's podcast and you compare it to Jesus, Jesus' ministry is a, a, a thousand, a million times more iconic, a uh, far greater reach than what Joe Rogan ever has or will ever have. Um, you can think of this, the Sermon on the Mount is to uh, Joe Rogan's podcast as is the new podcast I started last week, Sacred City Vision Drip is a Joe Rogan, okay? Exponentially greater viewership, greater listenership. Um, In fact, in a generation, Joe Rogan will probably be forgotten. 2,000 years later, we're still gathering around the words of Jesus to hear what he has to say to us, and guess what? It's more relevant than it's ever been. Um. And Jesus did this without using technology or mass media. This is a grassroots movement, okay? Christianity is a grassroots movement that has infiltrated the entire globe. And so keeping that in mind, just remember the the grassroots nature of this whole thing. Jesus has taken, he's got crowds of people who have been following him around. He's been proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. He's he's going, speaking to these crowds, and then he comes up to a mountainside, and and they're his disciples. So there's this transition that happens from the crowds as they follow him up to become his disciples, people who follow him, people who are apprenticing the way of Jesus. And he starts to talk to them about not only the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, when he says the kingdom of heaven is here, but he's talking about the nature of, the dynamics of the kingdom of heaven. And really, when you think about this, this is first century speak, first century language for talking about the good life. Because here you have um, the, the, the Jews who would have been following Jesus, who had this concept of uh, Israel as the kingdom of God's people. And so this sort of idea of living in God's ways, following God, is going to lead to this this flourishing. At the same time, the Greeks who are there listening to him have the same, the phil, phil, philosophy is really taken off, and, and the whole question with Greek philosophy is, how do I live my best life? And so Jesus here is presenting to them, submitting to them, that the kingdom of heaven is, is the answer to this, to the good life, to, to the human flourishing that they desire to experience, and it's not just something that happens out in the future someday. It's not just like when, when you know, this world expires, then the kingdom of heaven arises. Jesus says, right now, you can live into the kingdom of heaven. 
And the first section of this sermon that Jesus is preaching um, is called the Beatitudes. We went through this one, one, basically one Beatitude at a time over the last nine weeks. And in this section of the sermon, Jesus is explaining the kind of people who are invited to the kingdom of heaven, the kind of people who will be in the kingdom of heaven, who occupy the kingdom of heaven. Uh, So basically, he's saying, here's what the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are like. He's telling us who the kingdom of heaven is for, who's invited, what characteristics do they embody. And over the last nine weeks, we've done a deep dive into each one, really sort of fleshing out what does it mean to be meek, what does it mean to be poor in spirit, just each one going down the line, and, and there's a little bit of a drawback when we do that. Yeah, we get to dive deep into each one, but, but really when you look at the Beatitudes, they're meant to be viewed together as a unit, right? Not just this isolated one, but actually together as a unit. And as, and as you view the Beatitudes as a unit, there's this sequential pattern that we see in the Beatitudes of going from empty to full, from going from, from barren or, or, or uh, struggling to flourishing, so we see blessed are the, those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those who are hungry, right? These are the people who there's some sort of deficit in their life, yet here they receive the invite in the kingdom of heaven. They're the people who the world, according to the world standards, would be the least qualified for any sort of nobility, for any sort of prestige or honor or even acceptance. But Jesus says, if you're poor, if you're mourning, if you're meek, If you're hungry, the kingdom of heaven is for you. But then there's this transformation that happens, right as Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is for those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He says those will be satisfied. There's this transformation that happens where Jesus' fullness is bestowed to any of us who come to him through faith. That the poor become rich, the meek become assured and confident, those who mourn will be comforted, the hungry will be satisfied, and even in the midst of persecution and hostility, God's people, kingdom citizens, will rejoice and be glad, because our citizenship belongs to the unshakable kingdom of heaven. We are serving King Jesus. So if we are kingdom people, here's the burning question. If we're kingdom people, if Jesus is inviting us into the kingdom of heaven, what in the world are we still doing here? Like, why wouldn't Jesus just sort of like, uh, you know, airlift us out of this dumpster fire of a world? Why doesn't he just extract us from us? Like, beam me up, Scotty, right? Why doesn't he just pull us out and let us just enter right into the kingdom of heaven? Why do we have to kind of go through this in between the already not yet of the kingdom, especially in 2020. Like, everybody's asking that question in 2020. What do I have to do to get out of here? Well, there's a reason behind this. There's a reason why Jesus leaves us here, that we are, we are dual citizens in this moment, that, that we occupy the world, we occupy the earth, but we are citizens of heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven doesn't extract us from earth. In fact, the kingdom of heaven is not separate from the earth. Jesus is actually under his authority, under his lordship, is renewing the earth to conform to the heavens. In fact, when you look at the book of Revelation, we see that the the heavens come down and the earth comes up. That's what the new heavens, new earth is. It's not that the earth is gone, it's, you know, thrown in the trash can and we've got this new world. Jesus is merging heaven and earth together. Everything that's good, beautiful, and true will stand. Anything that's not will fade away. And what Jesus is doing here as he sits on the mountaintop is is tearing down the wall between heaven and earth, tearing down the wall between the ideal and the real, and he's merging them together. And he's saying, listen, right now there's this in-between moment, the already but not yet, but but the kingdom of heaven will come in its fullness. It will be consummated. The, The new heavens, new earth. And when we talk about the new heavens, new earth, this is not a chronological new, right? Like you buy a brand new car, right? That 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 just came out of the, the factory last week or whatever. It, that's a new car. Jesus is talking about new in a qualitative sense, right? Taking that old uh, 1958 Bel Air that's been run down, rust, all that stuff, and he's refurbishing it. He's making it new in a qualitative state. So it, it's returned to its future, its, its, its intended glory. See, Jesus, Jesus is the true and better Chip and Joanna Gaines, all right? He's the true fixer-upper. He's the one that's taking the brokenness of the world. And that's what he's doing right now as he's talking to the people on the hillside. 
saying this is where it's going. This is what's happening. Now, the reason why Jesus keeps us here on earth right now, if we're citizens of heaven, is because Christians are here. Jesus is deploying us to radically and positively impact the world, to get to work, to, to start doing the demo process, to start putting in the countertops, start putting up the cabinets and doing the paint. He's helping, he's, he's calling us into impacting the world in a radical and positive way until he returns and finishes the project in its fullness. We are here to shape and curate this world so that it reflects or is working its way towards the new heavens and new earth as the spirit of God is moving, as Jesus is sending and commissioning his church, that we as Christians are to be forecasters. Saying, hey, this is what's on the horizon, people. This is what we're moving toward. We're forecasting what the kingdom of heaven is like. We're demonstrating what the kingdom of heaven is like as we live in community and on mission. Right? A church community ought to be an outpost for the kingdom of heaven. Like the way that we love each other, the way that we serve each other, the way that we lay down our lives for one another, and the way, all the different ways that we just interact with each other because of the gospel is pointing forward to what the new heavens and new earth is going to be like when there's no anger, there's no hostility, there's no fear, there's no tears. But in order to shape the world like this, in order to have this radical and transformative impact on our culture, on the world, on the city, we must first be shaped people. In order to be people who shape, we must be shaped people by the gospel of Jesus. And we're going to talk about this. How are we a shaped people? Well, this, Jesus is going to talk about shaping three things for us. And, and this is going to get really baptist here because there's three Ps. All right. Jesus is going to shape our persona our identity, right, who we are. Jesus is going to shape our, our purpose. What are we here to do? And Jesus is going to shape our product. Like, what's, what's the desired result? What's the product we're aiming for? To what end are we in this world? So let's, let's dig in here. If you grab your Bible with me, open up. Uh, Pew Bible will be the text up here. And we're just going to go through this now. The the verses that we're looking at, verses 13 through 16, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, right? These are some of the most well-known verses of scripture. In fact, it kind of becomes common lingo, right, that we use, you know, you're talking about somebody who's, you know, like, they're just a down-to-earth person, they're a good person, right? That's a person's the salt of the earth, right? Or even go to my favorite coffee shop in town, um, on the wall, it says, be the light, right? It's sort of the culture has sort of adopted this language. There's something about it that, that's actually really profound, really powerful. But as we look at these verses, what's really interesting is that verses 3 through 16 are steeped in identity language. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, notice he doesn't say, hey, Christian, why don't you try to be the salt of the earth? He doesn't say, well, why don't you prove that you're the light? Like, why don't you really just put your back into it and show us, right? No, he doesn't do that because this identity that he gives isn't, isn't based upon merit. This isn't a sort of works-accomplished identity that we earn. This is given to us. See, an, an identity earned is, a, is an identity that can be easily lost, I think about it. If your identity is wrapped up in your work and you lose your job, you're in the midst of identity crisis. If your identity is wrapped up in being a good parent and your kids go haywire, what does that mean about your identity? Because if you're earning your identity in this way, it can be lost. Your successes can be dethroned by your failures. But Jesus gives us identity and it can't be earned, therefore it cannot be lost. In this sense, the gospel is the only identity source that is secure because it's not based on our efforts or our successes or our failures, but completely based on the work of Jesus. And what's interesting here is the statement, not, not just the statement, but actually who's saying the statement and the authority that it comes with. Because when you think of it, so God speaking to Moses, Moses go back to the burning bush. Moses says, who should I say that sends me? God says, I am, the I am. Now, Jesus in John's gospel, seven statements that are really profound, he says that I am. Jesus is echoing here 
Jesus is showing there's continuity between the God of Moses and this, this Jesus, the Messiah. So Jesus, the I am, is saying you are. The profoundity of that. The I am says you are, and just like when he spoke at the beginning of creation, and it was, so when Jesus speaks to us and says you are, it is true of us. In that moment, he declares reality. He says, Christian, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Right? He's speaking to our identity. That, that is who we are, but that's not where this identity language ends. I think a lot of times you just see the you are, you are, but what's really profound is what comes in verse 16. It says, in the same way, let your light shine. So there, there's your light shining as the light before others so that may, they may see your good works and give glory to who? Your Father who is in heaven. What's he saying here? He says, your identity, yes, your salt, yes, your light, but your identity is wrapped up in who you know. Your identity is, is based in the reality that you have a Father in heaven, that you are children of God. See, this is what Jesus is, is pointing to here because being soul and light is a derivative of this foundational identity of who we are as children of God. It's part of our genetic code that, that if we are a child of God, that we will be salt and light. It, it's, like, it's just like what quarterback talent is in the DNA for the Manning fa family, right? Archie Manning, you get Peyton Manning, you get Eli Manning. I don't know if you've seen the Sports Center stuff, but, but there's a, uh, the nephew of Peyton Manning that's coming up, high school kid that's just, it's like being, having quarterback talent is in the Manning DNA. It's just who you are. That's just what happens. But with God, it's salt and light. See, you're a child of God, and in your DNA is salt and light. See, Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. You see the salt, the light. He's exemplifying, God himself exemplifies the preservative and enhancing traits of salt. Psalm 16, the psalmist cries out, preserve me, O God. And we can see through the story of Israel, the story of the church, the story of God's people, that God is exalting and elevating his people to a place where they don't belong. He emits light, right? God appears to Moses in the burning bush. Fire produces light. You see God talking to Moses at Mount Sinai. What is it? How, how does he make his, his presence known? Through fire and lightning. Jesus, or God emits this light in 1 John chapter 1. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. See, God is salt. He is what makes the world tasty. He's, he's the definition of like a, a robust palate, flavorful. Taste and see that he's good. And so if you're a child of God, being salt and light is in your DNA. That is what you are. But what's fascinating is that as Jesus gives this discourse on the Sermon, uh, the sermon on the Mount, he's bringing this concept of being a son and, or, or a daughter of God to a completely new dimension. Completely new. As he's speaking to the Greeks who are there on the mountainside, their, their sort of, their narrative, their, their um, assumptions, their, the, the way that they think about this is sort of in, in a, a personal sense, like to be a child of God in sort of a personal sense, but not in a specific sense. So they would say, okay, yeah, everybody's a child of God. Everybody's been created by God, therefore, we're a child of God. And they would use a lowercase g because they, you know, they had a pantheon of gods. But, but like everybody's a, a, a child of God in the sense that we're created. So this uni it's a universal truth that everybody is a child of God. Now, the Jews had a different understanding. They, they saw this as very specific to being an Israelite. In Jeremiah 31, God says, Israel is my firstborn. They are my son. And so they have this awareness of like, okay, we as a corporate people... A specific corporate people have been bestowed, have been called children of God. So for them, it was specific, but it was not necessarily personal on an individual level. So they could talk about the people of God as the child of God, as a, uni you know, a unified body, but not in this personal sense. But Jesus here, the way that he talks about being a child of God is actually specific and personal. When he says, your father, 
Those two words, it, it's a personal plural pronoun, the word your. So this means this applies to you on an individual level. So like I can say God is not just our father, but my father. God's my father on an individual basis while also realizing that I'm set among a host of other people who get to call God their father, right? It'd be like the equivalent of the, of the, the from down south, y'all, right? You all, like your father, your, it's personal and plural in this sense. But it's not universal. See, Jesus doesn't come and say there's, there, it's, it's a universal reality. It's very specific. There, there's a very specific way that you receive this identity of being a child of God. So not everybody is called, not everybody is a child of God. Now this might sound arrogant. This might sound preposterous to you, right? Who, are you? Who am I to say that you're not a child of God? Well, the only way that I have any sort of platform to stand on and speak in this terms is because Jesus himself makes this kind of a distinction. He says there are sheep, and there are goats. There are people who walk in the light, and there are those who are stumbling in darkness. There are children of, of Satan and children of God. It's just one of two camps. And the human default is not to, to go in with the good guys, right? The human default is not to just automatically, nobody's born a saved child of God. It's something that has to take place. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus when he comes to him at the dark of night, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, you have to be born again. Now, this is very confusing for Nicodemus, but Jesus is pointing to the reality. He's like, do I have to, like, how does that work? Well, Jesus is like, the spirit must rebirth you, like, become a new creation. That's why in Colossians chapter one, the apostle Paul uses a language. He says, you've been delivered, right? What do you do with a baby? You deliver a baby. You've been delivered from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son, See, this is how new life happens. It's when our sin is crucified and nailed to the cross with Jesus, and we, by grace through faith, have this new life in him, that we are born again. The Spirit does such a work where the resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in my, my life, where I receive a completely brand new life in Christ. I've been adopted. And so I'm now not a child of the darkness of domain, the domain of darkness. I'm a child in the kingdom of the beloved son. The belovedness of Jesus is the belovedness that I now receive. To become a child, to become a kingdom person, means that your mess, your sin, your brokenness has been met by the restorative grace and power of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. There's no other alternative. That's the one way that you can become a child of God. And when you encounter this grace, grace sets your whole entire life on a new trajectory. You've been called out of the world, delivered from the domain of darkness, called out to be God's own people. God, uh, Peter talks about this. You are, you are God's treasure. His, his possession, a people for his own possession. You've been called out. There's something about you that's distinct. And, and as we're called out of the world, doesn't mean that we detach from the world. Jesus actually says we're in the world, but not of the world. That, that's, that's sort of the, the mentality that Christians should have. We're here. We're occupying this space. We have a purpose in this world, but we are not of the world. We have something definitively, foundationally different about us because of the gospel. And now, having received that grace, I'm on mission with God. Because the reality is, God is still adopting children. There are people that you work with. There are people that you live next to. There are people in your family who have not yet been adopted, but God is working through the adoption process. He's calling these people to himself, and he wants you to help. He wants you to step in that. He wants you to proclaim the goodness of the Father and demonstrate what God is like. See, we are all kids of God's ever-expanding family. And the more that we show what the Father is like, the more people are drawn to him. See, this is how our gospel persona, our identity in the gospel, gives way to our gospel purpose. The two are connected. You can't separate the two. 
If you are a gospel person, if you've been saved by the blood of Jesus, then you're called into the mission of God. Charles Spurgeon said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. You've either been adopted into the family of God and then sent to go do help God in his adoption work, or, I don't know, have you really been adopted at all? Now, this is what the stuff about salt and light is all about. What Jesus is talking about here is how this internal, the internal reality of becoming a child or even the Beatitudes of seeing how, how so much of the stuff, the, the poor in spirit, the mourn, the meek, the thir- hunger and thirst, the merciful, the pure in heart, like the, these things are internal things that are now becoming uh, made known externally. That if we're adopted into, the, into God's family, we are now a citizen of heaven. We've got to ask, what are we here for? What's our place in this world? Well, Jesus explains this. What's our function? What's our purpose? He explains this by presenting us with two things, two elements that are both essential and functional, salt and light. There, there are two, th- two things that are incredibly f- necessary for life. So when Jesus says you are salt and light, he, he's, in one sense he's saying that you are useful to God. And you might not think that. It's like, oh, well, you know, God uses the, those who are ordained in ministry. God uses those really spiritual people. God uses Jesse and Mel. I, not me. Not me. I don't. But that's not true. Jesus is saying that you are, if you've been adopted, you, you are a child of God. You are salt and light. You are useful to God for his purpose. Now, the, the original audience knew that salt had a myriad of uses, right? For taste, uh, a preservative agent, it's a purifying agent. I don't know if you want to put salt in the wound, but it would work back then. They didn't have, you know, triple antibiotic cream that you could throw on there. It would work in these ways. And light also has a myriad of different uses, or even different references as we get to the Old Testament. Uh, light illuminates. It, it can be thought of synonymous with wisdom. It's essential for life. Like, plants can't grow. If plants don't grow, we can't eat, because our food has to eat that for food. No light, no food, it's essential for life, right? You've got a vitamin D deficiency, your health is going to decline, right? We need light. It's essential for life. The Old Testament points to light as talking about it as revelation, right, that illumination. It talks about wisdom of righteousness, about holiness. God's, God's holiness is displayed in the brightness of his splendor. When Jesus is transfigured, um, he's radiant because his holiness, the righteousness, we even think of light in terms of God's presence, right? That's how we know, that's how God made his presence known is through light. And because light and salt are both multifunctional, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what Jesus is trying to get at. It's hard to say, well, is he talking about we're a purifying agent? Is he talking about, are, are we, do we add taste? Like, what is he talking about specifically? I don't think it's a reach to say that Jesus is using Christians or calling Christians to embody a little bit of all of it. Like that, all of those things are true of a Christian. You read the Gospels, you read the Epistles, and, and, and this all attests to it that Christians are meant to enhance the world. Christians, like salt, are, are, are to season whatever's before them, to make it more palatable, more enjoyable, to pull out the flavors. Christians are meant to be a light, to illuminate the path, right? That if Jesus is the light of the world, that we, we are shining the light on Jesus. So we as Christians, Work to preserve and purify our culture, right? To, to like stand for morals. Morality isn't relative. To improve the quality of life, not just for ourselves, but for other people. To, to demonstrate righteousness, the way that we live, right? When we talk about the pure in heart, to be pure in heart is sort of like an internally thing, but, but if you're pure in heart, it's going to have external manifestations. You're going to live righteously, to project the light, to connect others with the true life source, the real sun, to embody wisdom. So when Jesus says, you are the salt of, of the earth, you are the light of the world, he's not just telling us what we are. He's actually telling us a little bit about the world. He's saying that the world is dark, it's bland, it's lacking, it's deficient, it might be uninformed. Left to its own devices, the world and the people in it will stumble its way into an obliterate. See, this is like the dual reality. You are the salt. You are the light. Well, that means that there's a void here. You might think that this is an over-the-top thing. Uh, you know, oh, we, we have a, 
Our world's not perfect, but it's pretty good. We've come a long way. Like, we're, we're evolving. I mean, that, in some ways, that's true. I would argue that Christianity had a lot to do with evolution, you know, like the, the maturation of humanity. Like, where do hospitals come from, institutions of learning, places that are actually doing good? Most, most nonprofits have some sort of an origin story in the faith realm. And some, you might say, okay, well, we're, we're, it's not perfect, but it's good. And some might even say, you know what? I think religion is actually making it harder. It's actually contributing to the brokenness of this world. In some ways, you're probably right. But if you think that talking about sin and, and, and the guilt that we associate with sin is stunting growth, that's, that's keeping us from flourishing, I, I, think, I think that's just wrong. People might say, like, okay, well, we just need to, to focus on becoming our best selves. Like, focus on growing. And to be honest with you, this is, the, this is the mantra of the Enlightenment era, right? That we can reason ourselves into betterment. We can think ourselves, we can, we can take steps ourselves into becoming better people, making our world a better place. But that hasn't worked. The Enlightenment's been around for a while, and that hasn't worked. We're still kind of where we're at right now. And what you really find is that the enlightenment mantra of let's just focus on growing, let's just become better people, it actually produces two kinds of people. It'll either produce a naive optimist or a gloomy cynic. And if you're either one of these two things, that's actually going to hinder any kind of real growth, any kind of pursuit of human flourishing by being a naive optimist or a gloomy cynic. Let me tell you why. Because either, either you will resort to idealism Right? Oh, this is everything's everything's rosy, everything's nice, you know, it's not perfect, but it's great. And you stop, you, you are unable to see the world's problems for what it is. You're unable, like you see, oh yeah, we've got these little problems, you know, but but it's more like bickering and squabbling instead of like these really profound you know problems at the root level. And so you resort to idealism, not seeing the true issue, not seeing the depth of the issue, not seeing the, the extremity of the issue. Is that a word, extremity? The extremeness, that's what I meant to say, of the issue. So you'll be idealistic in a sense, or you'll result to realism. You see the problems for what it is. You see that this is not just a matter of Republican versus Democrat, white versus black. Whatever sort of distinctions and, and designations we make as people, it's not just us. There's a, there's a deeper issue at play, and you see the issue for what it is. You see the problem, the depth of the problem, and, and you realize that there's not a lot we can do about this. Like, in our own human agency, we have limited resources to actually speak a real solution to the real problems, and so we are driven into despair. It's like, the, the, the contrast is this. If you've got, if you got a... Um, a naive optimist and a gloomy cynic in a boat, and you get a hole in the boat. The, uh, the naive optimist is like, oh, the view is just so beautiful. It's like I needed to wash my feet anyway as the water rises, right? What's going to happen eventually? It's going to capsize. Well, the gloomy cynic is like, this is life or death. Like, we've got we to gotta do something. We've got to start throwing stuff out. And eventually, you start trying to, you realize that this process of trying to unload the water that's filling up the boat is pretty... It's futile, and what do you do? You give up. There's no point in this. Why do we even try? On the one hand, you have no right answers. You've got no solution to the real problems. Maybe at best, you have the right answers to the wrong problems. On the other hand, you have no answers because it's too overwhelming. The world is just in such a dire state that how in the, how in the world can we possibly emerge out of this? But a Christian worldview keeps us from naive optimism and gloomy cynicism. That's because a Christian worldview doesn't focus on the idealistic, nor does it focus on the realistic. A Christian worldview keeps Jesus as its center focal point. Tim Keller says that Jesus is the ideal who has become real. Here, we get the best of both worlds. The, the ideal, the, the, the vision that we have for how great life can be is met by the reality, and Jesus is the ideal who becomes real. And he's more than just a teacher in this sense. He's more than just a guy who's sitting on the mountainside who's got some good ideas that could help us evolve a little bit. He is the good life realized. 
And he's inviting us to step through this portal, that he's, this hole in the wall that he's punching through between the heavens and the earth, between the real and the ideal. And he's inviting us to step through with him and to be the salt and light, to show the dying world the resurrecting power of Jesus at that play. See, this is what we're here for. We step through it. We step through it with Jesus. We're following Jesus, but we're also we're projecting the saltiness, the, 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 the light of Jesus. And this is what keeps Christians present. This is what keeps Christians from not despairing. This is what keeps Christians from having flimsy answers to really robust problems. We can see the world for what it is and not give up hope because we see that Jesus, he's the focal point. He's the one that holds all things together. And so, therefore, Christians don't have to be overwhelmed by the world. We step into the world, and we are present and active. Now, in order for salt and light to do what it's meant to do, it has to make contact with that, that which it isn't. Like, to salt your veggies, salt has to touch your veggies. Like, to... For light to do what it's meant to do, it has to touch the darkness. Salt and light must connect. So must Christians with this dark and dying and tasteless and bland world. Now, one of the problems that we've made historically as a church is we've become sort of monastic, right? We've adopted a mentality of, of monasticism. Like, you know, like a monastery. Like, okay, Christians, we're this holy huddle. We're going to detach ourselves from the world, get far enough away from it, for, or this is just a, like part of the world that we're tucking in for ourselves, and, and the world does its own thing. That's not the vision that Jesus has for Christians in this world. See, Jesus is calling us out of the nest. See, it's not this monastic sort of like keep to ourselves, stay in the safe spot, He's calling us to have good and strong Christian community. Yes, we want that. We want to be a gospel community with profound and meaningful relationships, but not exclusively. If, we're, if the only people that we know in our life and have meaningful connections with are Christians, we're doing something wrong. Because Jesus is pushing out of the nest. He, G, Keller says this, that God is like a spiritual tornado. He, draws us, he never draws us in without wanting to send us back out. That we're sent out, we're brought in and then sent out with a, a purpose. That means that as Christians, we're meant to be embedded into the city, to function by Jesus' design as salt and light. That Jesus wants you to have meaningful relationships with people that he's calling to himself, people that he's in the adoption process with. That's why he says in verse 15, like, you don't take light and you put it under a basket. You don't do that. What good is that? Right? There's no cap. You don't, you don't cap light. You put it on a light stand. You don't hide it. You put it on a light stand so people can see it. That's what light is there for. And so he says in verse 16, let your light shine. That means, Christian, that we need to be, if we're going to be the light, we have to connect with the darkness in some ways. Now, there is a warning here that Jesus also gives. Because this calling, this is a messy calling. This is not a black and white calling. There's a lot of gray area here with, with what this actually looks like. And the warning that Jesus gives us is that when we live in contact with the culture, there is, a, there is the temptation that comes for us to lose our distinctiveness. That's what he's talking about with, uh, I think it's verse 14, or actually, no, verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but as salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and to trampled under people's feet. See, what he's talking about here is losing the distinctness of our Christian identity, of our gospel identity. Rather than de demonstrating the kingdom of God, de rather than demonstrating the dynamics of the kingdom that we're going to get into, that Jesus kind of fleshes out further into the Sermon on the Mount, that we begin to black backslide into the ways of the world, that we lose our, our progression and begin to regress. That instead of the Beatitudes, we start living the unbeatitudes. It's like, blessed are those who are satisfied. Blessed are those who are happy. Blessed are, the, you know, blessed are those who trample. Like, that is the way of the world. It's not the way of Jesus. And when salt loses its saltiness, in fact, like, if you're a chemist, you're thinking, well, salt can't really lose its saltiness. For salt to lose its saltiness means that salt stops being salt. And that's, there's, there's a little bit of this true. I want to be careful about saying that. But there's a little bit, like, Jesus is like, this is who you are, and you're either living into that identity or you're not, and you're forgetting your identity. But if salt loses its saltiness, it, it is not useful. 
It's, it's not functional. It's lost its function. And so what it's good for, tossed out on the street. Now, our purpose is to be distinct from the world. Right? Jesus says, let your light shine before all men. And so that means that both brothers and sisters in Christ and those who are not yet Christians, and to be engaged with them with a purpose, to be salty in the good way, not in the bad way. Be salty, be the light. Give people a taste of the kingdom of heaven that is breaking into this world. Or in other words, make Psalm 34 come alive. Taste and see that the Lord is good, right? That's what Christians are, are helping people taste and see the goodness of the Lord. Now, what does this look like? Now, this is, this is why community is so important. This is why we have to be immersed in a gospel community so that we can think through what does it look like to be, first of all, to have sort of a home base, people I can, I can trust and come back to and retreat to when, when I'm starting to lose my bearings about being a child of God. I got these people that I come back to, but also people that encourage me, that go with me as I'm sent out as a missionary. What does it look like for me to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world in my work? Well, I mean, just to make a generalization, it means that you're distinct from people who are not salt of the earth, not light of the world. That, that the patterns, the habits, the, 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 uh, the normative rhythms that they might have, you diverge paths, right? If, if they're prone to cheat, if they're prone to, to lie, bend the truth, we don't, we don't do that. If they're prone to throw somebody under the bus for their own gain, that's not what a kingdom person does. Right, we let our, our light shine. This also means that where you go, whether it be the gym, the grocery store, work, in your neighborhood, where you live, you're not just there to be there. You're not just there for a paycheck. You're not just there to get fit. You're not just there to get your groceries. You're there as salt and light. You're there to demonstrate and it could be as simple as like having a positive interaction with somebody who's checking you out because usually they have like Conversation that's about this deep. Hey, how, how are you doing? Good. And that's the end of the conversation. Like, even in that simple exchange, how can we step into that in a way that validates that person's personhood, their humanity? Or think of it like with our kids. How, Because how, how, if nobody's born a Christian, how can we demonstrate the goodness, the taste of the Lord? Well, Paul has lots of, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Right? Like, lead them. Show them the goodness. You know, this might look like worship expressively on Sunday mornings. Make prayer time, make Bible time a priority. That you, this is, this is you know, spiritually speaking, this is a meal that you cannot afford to miss every day. And your kid sees that you are feasting on the word of God. And then live. Live what you read with the power of Jesus, the spirit at work in you. Now, the question is, are you doing this? Are we doing this? Or are we salty in the wrong way? We, like, are we the bad kind of salt? Like, are we, are we an abrasive light? The kind that people are like, oh, jeepers. Like, are, are, are we the light, the kind of light, the kind of salt Jesus is, is calling us to be? Or are we doing something different? Now, honestly, I'm going to let, like, the stuff that Terry said was nice and all. But let me end, let you into my internal life here. I often feel that I am not salty enough. I often feel that my light is flickering and dim. That I fail to live into my God-given purpose as a beloved son of the Father. That I don't consistently reflect the love of Jesus. In fact, more often, I'm probably angry. More often, I'm probably judgmental. That my flesh flares up, right? It's the old man that Jesus came to crucify that tends to kind of rise to the surface instead of this new man that Jesus created me to be. And so I'm salty in the bad way. And in that moment, I'm not, I'm not just doing the wrong things. I'm betraying this gospel identity. I'm betraying my persona that comes in Christ, that I am not becoming who I already am. And maybe you can relate to that. I just don't feel like I'm doing it right. I've, you know, it's inconsistent and not very intentional at work or at the gym. I 
don't even, you know, I don't even have non-Christian friends. Or maybe it's like, I don't even have, I don't have Christian community that can fall back. Like, whatever that is, just don't feel like I'm living into this role as salt and light. Now, the question then is, according to Jesus here, what happens? What happens with me? Does that mean I just get tossed out? Like, if I've become unuseful, does that mean that Jesus just throws me out on the path to be trampled on? Does that mean that my, my, my flickering flame gets snuffed out? Right? Because I'm wondering, am I deemed useless? The gospel says no. Jesus emphatically says no. See, in this moment where we're coming to the realization that in myself I am not salt, I am not light, in this moment, the gospel becomes all the more real to me. It's my failures that are met by Jesus' success. That in myself, I am not salty, I'm not light, but Jesus perfectly lived a life of salt and light, always. He's the one that made Psalm 34 come alive. Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Where do you have to go for that? To Jesus. Taste and see. Jesus embodies this. He expands her palate to taste, to see clearly. He illuminates the way to life. He purifies our faltering hearts. He flavorifies us. He preserves us. See, it's not me who holds on to Jesus. It's Jesus who holds on to me. He instructs me, and on and on and on. See, Jesus did it right. Jesus did it right, not me. But what did that get Jesus? Was he lifted up on a lampstand? He was lifted up on a cross. See, Jesus was tossed out. Jesus was snuffed out so that I wouldn't be. This is the gospel. See, when you see Jesus and the sacrificial love that he has for us, that he would go to this length to bring me into the family of God, you cannot help but taste and see that the Lord is good and that all of life now becomes a worship, not just Sunday mornings, not just when we sing songs and lift our hands, which is awesome, but all of life becomes worship. See, this is how we now let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works, so they see our good works the way that we live in accordance with the gospel, but they don't give glory to me. The glory doesn't go to me. It goes to God that they would glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus gets the credit. I'm a hot mess here. Jesus gets the credit. Now, I don't deserve any of this. I, I don't deserve to be called a child of God. It's simply a gift. It's the grace of God that makes me what I am. Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. And that reality, that identity doesn't change no matter how much I falter, no matter how inconsistent I might be. I am a child. You, Christian, are a child of God. And if you are sitting in this room today, it's like, I don't know if I'm a child of God. Jesus is inviting you to become one today. By faith, trust in him. Look at his perfect life, death on the cross for you and see the life that he now gives you that leads you into the arms of the Father. See, this is why, like, you know, we think of, of Christianity, like I was talking about this personal but yet specific. Anybody can get in on this. Anybody can become a child of God if they turn to Jesus. And when this happens, the more I turn to Jesus, the more that I remember my identity in the gospel, the more glory God gets. Not me. See, the reality is, as Christians, we ought to be so secure in our identity in Christ that we don't have to pander for applause. That we don't need people around patting us on the back, telling us, oh, good job. Like, no, don't get me wrong. It's great to be recognized. It's great to be appreciated. But I don't need that because my identity is in Christ, not the opinions of men. I don't need applause because my identity is secure in Christ. I belong to God. And the product 
of my realized persona, the product of living into my God-given purpose is praise. That's what verse 16, that they would glorify, give glory to your Father who is heaven. The more I give God glory for what he has done in my life, the more likely others are to taste and see that God is good, that they too would glorify the Father. This is why we share stories. This is why we share evidences of grace. This is why we talk about Jesus. You know what? We need to normalize talking about Jesus because it's good. It tastes good. It looks good. It's a, it's a beautiful vision. See, and God is glorified when we worship Jesus because he is the true salt. He is the true light. In him there is no darkness at all. In fact, John starts out his gospel, he says that, that the darkness can't win. The light entered the world and the darkness has not overcome it. See, this is the power of Jesus and this is the power of Jesus at work in our lives. Jesus gets the last word. The light wins, the earth will be flavorful, the cosmos will be renewed, the new heavens and new earth will come. And everything will be beautified, even me, even you. And anybody can get in on this. So Sacred City Church, let your light shine. Let your light shine. Remember your identity in Christ. Remember what Christ has called you for, for every good work that he set apart for you to do at the beginning of the world. And live into that. Live into it so that we would glorify God in our living and others would come to know the real Jesus. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, oh, I got long-winded. We thank you for your mercy toward us in Christ. This, this is a, a radical truth that the only way that we could wrap our minds around, the only way that we can come to embrace this is if your spirit moves in a way and we're born again. God, would you this morning make someone come alive in Christ? And those of us who are already alive in Christ, help us to live into our purpose. Help us to radiate the, the splendor and the beauty and the glory of Jesus in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, the gym, wherever we go, Father, would you make us into the salt and light that we are. Help us to become what we already are for your glory and for our good and the good of our city. We pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. 